I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, November 21st, 2011. So, question right off the bat, uh, does the number of followers you have on Twitter determine whether or not uh, what you're saying is true or not true? Think about it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we do the discernment work to see if what somebody's saying is truly what God's Word teaches or if what they're teaching is really their own made-up theology. Here's the deal. Okay, um, you don't get to take God's Word and water it down. Okay, um, there's... Uh, it's hilarious. If you, if you, uh, I've been reading a lot in the Church Fathers lately. But uh, Irenaeus, uh, he's got a great example that he uses in um, Book 4 of his uh, book entitled uh, Against Heresies or Contra Heresies. And uh, in in book four, he he uses uh, uh, Isaiah chapter one, I think verse twenty two. I'm doing this from memory, where it talks about mixing water and wine and watering down the wine uh, to basically talk about that there's a technique that heretics use, and that is is that they they if you if the Bible and sound biblical doctrine and teaching were wine then heretics, what they do is they dilute the wine with their own water, and that water is their own theology, their own thinking, their own the, the, the imaginations of their own mind, if you would. And it, it, one of the tests, always a, a good test, uh, to see if whether or not somebody is teaching you historic biblical Christianity is if you can find other people in history who've taught the same thing that your pastor's teaching. 
if you can't, there's probably a reason why. And that is, is because he's taking the biblical wine, if you would, and diluting it with his own water, his own heresy, his own ideas, the, the, the machinations of his mind. And there's a technique that goes along with it. And the technique is pretty much this. You take the, the subject of the scriptures, which is Jesus Christ, and you wrestle the texts away from him and put them on yourselves. And the way this is done is by allegorizing the texts in such a way that this, this well, basically, this is just an example, a symbol, an allegory for us to apply to our own lives, and you become the center of scripture. That's the problem. Uh, you and I ain't the center of Scripture. Jesus Christ is. And so as a result of it, if you start watering down the Scriptures like that, you're going to end up with a theology that doesn't point people to Christ, doesn't pro correctly proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and is basically a fantasy theology invented in the mind of the person teaching it. That's not what we're supposed to do. Christians don't get to vote on sound biblical doctrine. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and if your pastor ain't preaching it, then he's he's diluting the wine of the scriptures with his own, well, delusions. And so you want to avoid those folks. So what, we're do, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is we basically have an eye on the historic Orthodox Christian faith. Now, you can refer to it as the historic Orthodox Catholic faith, but people get really nervous when you mention that word. The reason why is because Catholicism has become known as Roman Catholicism, you know, with the Pope sitting at the top of the heap, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the Bishop of Rome, you know, basically uh, stealing power for himself that the Scripture doesn't ha uh, give to him, and there's all kinds of crazy theology that's, uh, that's, you know, basically embedded itself in Roman Catholicism. It's not what I'm referring to. Okay, um, there have been historic Catholics, and Catholic, by the way, is is a term that main, means universal. If you want to understand how it was understood originally, you find it in the Church Fathers, and the idea is this: back in the ancient world, back in you know, back, 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 gods or deities were considered territorial. And so you'd cross this river and you'd end up in, you'd go from the land of this deity to the land of that deity. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and a lot of times when one army would defeat another army, it was seen as a victory by one god over another god. Kind of the idea. And so Christianity comes along and it teaches that there is one true God who's the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And this one true God is the true God of all human beings, regardless of territory or time or place. And so the Christian faith was a universal faith to be preached to everyone, everywhere, at all times, regardless of you know, time, culture, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then that's the idea. Go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said, right? So there's a Catholicism, if you would. So, and that's what Catholicism is. It's the universal, historic, orthodox Christian faith, right? So if, uh, if you can't find somebody in the past who has been preaching and confessing what it is that your unique individual pastors teaching and proclaiming, 
chances are he's a, he's got his own water that he's adding to God's word in order to dilute it. Now, the idea here is is that heresy always tastes like wine, uh, but with different differing degrees of the strength of the wine, if you would. Okay, so that's the metaphor. That you, you got that anyway. That's the metaphor that Irenaeus uses. So if you got a really if you got a really rank heretic, then what happens is you get a couple of drops of wine in your glass of water, but the water is all heresy. Okay, uh, it's the ones that uh, that you know. Who, <laughs> it's the ones who who really are careful not to put too much heresy uh, in with the wine, so that it, 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 those are the ones that are tougher to detect. Just way tougher, anyway. So all of that's just our historical lesson for the day. Uh, let's let's talk about a little bit of uh, house cleaning stuff, if you would. Uh, here in the United States, uh, we're going to be celebrating uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, this Thursday, and those of you outside of the United States, Thanksgiving's kind of a big deal. Um, it's it's we it's, some strange traditions have come up uh, as a result of Thanksgiving. I don't know if they celebrate it in other countries. Um, I know that Canada has something similar to it, but it's at a different time. But uh, the the idea is this: um, I think that and there's actually several days to the event, and even though Thanksgiving itself is officially on Thursday, um. Things occur on Friday and Saturday that seem to kind of all go along with it. Let me explain. Um, so Thanksgiving, it's a time when we're supposed to gather as a family and and thank the Lord for the many things that he has provided for us uh, as a family, as a nation, things like that. And uh, what it's div- basically <laughs> divul- devolved, devolved, de-evolutionized, uh, de-evolutionized, de- you get what I'm saying. It's turned into something like this. Okay, so here's what you do. Um, you graze all day long on snacks and, 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 you know, so that would be cookies or, you know, treats and things of that nature or veggie platters and stuff like that while watching football. Strange. It's, it's true, but that's all part of it. Uh, you can also enjoy the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, and then dinner time somewhere mid afternoon where you eat copious amounts of turkey, mashed potatoes, uh, sweet potatoes, uh, uh, cranberry sauce, and the like, um, followed by pumpkin pie, and then everybody going to the um, uh, the living room uh, with their you know the top notch of their pants undone, and then everybody slips into a, a tryptophan induced food coma. And uh, and you wake up to like the first Christmas specials on on television and then, you know, to kind of shake off the whole food coma thing and to make yourself feel better. You wake up at three in the morning and go wait in line at Walmart in order to get um, discounts on (laughs) on electronic items. It doesn't make any sense. But then and then on Saturday, you spend the day decorating your house for Christmas. It all makes sense somehow, but that's how it's come to be observed. So here's the deal. Is that uh, that being the that that's the tradition that's uh, upon us? Um, I will be partaking in certain parts of the tradition. I will definitely not be going to Walmart though at three in the morning on Friday. Just that that ain't happening. You, <laughs> it's no, no, no. In fact, there's I don't care if they're giving things away. I'm not going. I just won't do it. So um, anyway, but uh, what we're gonna do here uh, today? Normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tomorrow, normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday. Um, is going to probably be a, a, a light edition, and then Thursday, Friday will be best of. 
but here's the deal. I mean, just so you know that uh, you know, if you listen to Pirate Christian Radio and you want to introduce your relatives to Pirate Christian Radio on Thanksgiving Day, we will, we will be broadcasting. But it'll be a best of edition of Fighting for the Faith on that day and also on Friday. So, um, so just want to let you all know that that's what's happening. So. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got two things that I want to do this hour, and I hope I get to both of them. <laughs> I just get the feeling I might go a little long on the one, and as a result of it, won't get to the other. But um, I uh, have a Stephen Furtick update, and uh, I want to talk about Michael Horton's um, blog post on what is the mission of the church. And then in hour number two, I'm going to be re uh, reviewing a sermon from Capital City Church in Columbus, Ohio. And I've picked this one particularly because uh, the pastor there does what you ought not to do, okay? He makes the biblical text about himself. As a result of it, he misses the point of the whole text. So this is kind of like a uh, a case study in, in how not to read the Bible. The, the Bible's about Jesus. It ain't about you. It's about Jesus. It ain't about you. Now, contrary to what Stephen Furtick might tell you, it definitely ain't about you. But anyway, so you know that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, I think it's probably just best if I just dive right into the program proper so that we can uh, get done everything that we need to get done today. So uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, if the weather permits, um, adult beverage, if you want to enjoy one. While listening to Fighting for the Faith, don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, drunkenness is a sin. Bendy straws, padding, duct tape, all of that stuff is in, in order. And uh, let's, let, in fact, let's just go. Here we go. Oh, yeah, Stephen Furtick update. It's going to take me a long time to unpack this. karaoke version of that thing anyway <laughs> i just hear you all your ears you're going no 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 we don't want to hear it that way anyway so um we're gonna be <laughs> talking about Stephen furtick here and in order to explain all of this um well it's gonna just it's gonna take a little bit of unpacking that's all i gotta say so uh, so here's the deal. I, I let off the program with the question. Does the number of followers that you have on Twitter determine whether or not what you're saying is true or not? Okay. 
Now, I mean, if that's the case, I mean, what is it? Ryan Seacrest is like he's like the Twitter Uber Uber Twitter guy extraordinaire. I mean, does that mean that you know that if uh, Ryan Seacrest were to uh, tweet something about Jesus, it would automatically be true because he's got so many followers on Twitter? And would it automatically mean that poor some poor schlub with only you know forty three followers uh, that what he says is automatically to be rejected? Well, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, we'll talk about this a little bit here. So that's kind of the the, the leadoff question here, and you'll you'll see what we're going to do here. Um, so here's the deal: Stephen Furtick had an exchange with a critic. Okay, now it just so happens that this critic, well, he's got less than fifty followers on Twitter. It's true. It's isn't that horrible? And to to make matters worse. Yeah, he owns a blog. So, so you see, that's two strikes again. I mean, he obviously is the spawn of Satan, right? Uh, <laughs> so uh, let, let me tell you a little bit about the, what what happened here. This this came to my attention. Somebody sent me an email and said, you need to take a look at this exchange. And I thought, hmm. okay, so I'll t- I took a look at it. And there's a gentleman by the name of Richard E.G. I don't know what the G stands for, but his name is Richard, and he lives near Houston, Texas. Now, he runs a blog called Guarding the Gate, and you can find his blog at guardingthegate.blogspot.com. And from what I gather from his blog, he's kind of a, a, you know, a, a Reformed Baptist type. Okay. Now, to give you a little bit more background on this guy, uh, on the 19th of November, uh, on Twitter... Richard asked for prayer. Okay, and let me let me give you a reason why he asked for prayer. He said, "Getting ready to go share the gospel with about thirty to forty inmates at the Harris County Jail. Please pray for me." So, I mean, so here's so here's what we know: the guy is somewhere in the General Reform Baptist theological camp. That's what we know. His name is Richard. He's got less than fifty followers on Twitter, but. One of the things that Richard does is he goes to the Harris County Jail to preach the gospel. So he knows something about the gospel, you would assume. Okay, Now, all of that is to say this. About 24 hours ago, um, Richard, by the way, and you can find him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at RWAR80, and that's, that's, that's his Twitter handle. At RWAR80, okay? About 24 hours ago, he, Richard, made a comment about the recently released Elevation Worship CD, okay? And on the recently released Elevation Worship CD, um, there is a uh, cut, if you would, called The Gospel, okay? And when you listen to it, it's supposedly Stephen Furtick preaching the gospel. Okay? But Richard made a note of something. Okay? And he had, well, the audacity, pun intended, he had the audacity to mention Stephen Furtick and the gospel that he heard on the eleva- on the recently released Elevation Worship CD. And here's what Richard said, and here's the interesting thing. Furtick responded, so Richard responded, and then Furtick responded again. Okay. <clears throat> so here's what happened. 24 hours ago, Richard tweeted, I just listened to 
a Stephen Furtick gospel presentation on his Elevation Worship CD. No mention of sin, atonement, and repentance. Just listen to a Stephen Furtick gospel presentation on his Elevation Worship CD. No mention of sin, atonement, or repentance. Now, this is pretty objective stuff, right? I mean... If you're go- if all we've got to do is go and grab that cut off the Elevation Worship CD and listen to it. And if Stephen Furtick talks about the atonement and repentance and sin and correctly preaches the gospel, well, then Richard is all wet and he's wrong. It doesn't matter how many Twitter followers he has, right? Now, on the other hand, if I go and I grab the Elevation Worship CD and grab the gospel cut from the album and I play it and I don't hear of sin, atonement, and repentance in in that gospel presentation, then it doesn't matter how many followers Richard has, does it? What he said was right. Well, I mean, well, that's not how Stephen Furtick sees it because Stephen Furtick, you know, like I said, he responded to Richard, Richard responded back, Stephen Furtick responded back as well. So here's what happened. So remember, the tweet that went out, he says, that I just listened to a Stephen Furtick gospel presentation on his Elevation Worship CD, no mention of sin, atonement, or repentance. Okay? That's number one. So Furtick responded. He says, you're right, I suck, and now all 12 of your followers know it, I'm ruined. That, that was f- pastor, pastor, Christian pastor. Stephen Furtick's response. Oh, you're right. I suck, and now all 12 of your followers know it. I'm ruined. Wow. That's breathtakingly awful. Okay, It doesn't matter how many followers he has on Twitter. The question is, is what he's saying right? So Richard responded. He says, so Stephen, because the Bible's all about how many Twitter followers we have, right? Get the gospel right or don't preach it at all. Pretty decent response. So Furtick's response, nah, because you're an arrogant jerk. You don't know jack about what I preach. You're a cowardly critic and I rebuke you. That's what. So that's the exchange. Okay. So, um, right. So apparently... um. By the way, Richard had a final shot. He said, I know what I hear, and it's certainly not the gospel, so just stop it. Okay, now, so we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take a look at this. We're going to weigh in here. And uh, having seen what happened, you know, I, I, I felt bad that, uh, that Richard had been marginalized because, well, he has less than 50 followers on Twitter. And apparently that's the gauge of truth, you know. But see, here's the deal. It just so happens that Fighting for the Faith, the program you're listening to, we have tens of thousands of people who listen to each and every episode of Fighting for the Faith within a 30-day period. So between the time I post this and, the, and 30 days from now, there will be several tens of thousands of people who will download this episode of Fighting for the Faith and will hear it. So we're doing some audience enhancement, our audience um, multiplication, if you would, for Richard so that uh, Stephen Furtick can't accuse him of just only having you know, it's so few Twitter followers. But um, we're going to come back to this issue, by the way. But uh, so that's what we're going to do. But uh, so we're going to take a listen to Stephen Furtick's gospel presentation. And before we do that, 
want to lay a little bit of groundwork. Number one, I listen to not every one of Stephen Furtick's sermons, but I listen to close to all of them. Okay, Stephen Furtick is on my regular rotation. Now, I don't review him very often. Reason being is is that I don't try. I I don't want to pick on any one particular pastor over and 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 over again. It just it just makes it seem like I've got a particular personal axe to grind at that issue. Now, I've met Furtick, and I've talked with him on the phone, okay? Um, and let's just say we don't get along, okay? That's the, about the best I can put it. Now, I've said positive things about Furtick in the past when he's done positive things. But the one thing I've noticed about Furtick is, is that his theology is drifting, okay? And there's a reason why it's drifting, by the way. The reason why is because he doesn't rightly handle God's word. He doesn't. And he seems to think that uh, his conscience and what he thinks, uh, some vision that he's received, that that somehow should that dictate what it is that he's to preach in the pulpit. Yeah, that's not actually the, the, uh, the decider. What he should be preaching from the pulpit is what God's word clearly says using sound biblical hermeneutical methods. Okay, But he doesn't do it. Instead, he makes himself the center and the gospel he preaches is a little bit of an amalgam of some things, okay? It's a little bit of word faith mixed in with a little bit of T.D. Jakes's delivery style uh, with a little bit of Joel Osteen's emphasis on the here and the now um, and then mixed with a healthy dose of Stephen Furtick's own narcissistic ego. Now, I know that sounds brutal, but that's really reality, and I'll demonstrate that in a second. But uh, the idea here is is that Stephen Furtick, I, I'm beginning to think that uh, that I need to coin a phrase to describe his particular heresy because it's not exactly purely word faith, although it has some word faith elements to it. And so I, I'm I'm thinking about referring to it as the audacious faith heresy, the audacious faith heresy, and to kind of give you a sample of what it is that it that he's all about. I know I've played other stuff from Furtick in the past. Uh, I want to play this in order to lay a little bit of groundwork, then play for you the gospel presentation on the Elevation CD. So here is audio from a video that was put out by Multnomah Press, and uh, basically talking about his book, Sun Stand Still. By the way, he's working on another book called Greater, um, and he's in the, in the final edits process. And the one thing I've learned about Stephen Furtick is kind of like what Irenaeus warned us. He waters down the wine of Scripture with his own heretical doctrine. And he's teaching stuff that ain't nobody ever taught in the entire history of the Christian church. Why? Because it's his own narcissistic pipe dream theology that he's that he's preaching. In other words, Stephen Furtick rolls his own theology and he smokes it. So with that... Here's Stephen Furtick talking about his book, Sun Stand Still. The Sun Stand Still message is all about audacious faith. What happens when you dare to ask God for the impossible? Nothing is impossible to him who believes. Nothing is too difficult for God. 
Let's be a generation known for what we stand for. Let's be a generation known for what we love. Let's be a generation that represents the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. We are a generation. Okay, I want to point something out. Let's be a generation that represents, that does this, does that. Now, the Christian church has been given a mission by Christ. Luke chapter 24, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. All nations. Um, Furtick is off. He doesn't preach Christ. He preaches you with Christ helping you. You're the pilot. Jesus is your co-pilot. Uh, you're the in the driver's seat, really, and Jesus is there to basically assist you. Generation that will restore honor. Unfortunately, most Christians don't live on that level. Most Christians carry with them a chronic ache of the ordinary. Does my life really matter? Could my marriage ever really truly be fulfilling? Uh, an ache of the ordinary. Do you... It, it, so, so notice what he did there. He's okay. He's got his own theology. It's the sun stands still audacious faith heresy, and uh, he's got his own theology that he concocted all his all by himself. Okay, dabbling with a little bit of this, a little bit of that, threw it all into the hopper, and out came the audacious faith heresy. Much, uh, much the same way that Aaron claimed that uh, you know he threw the gold into the fire, and poof, out came a golden calf. Okay, so here we've got the audacious faith heresy, and apparently he, the audacious faith heresy seeks to help those who suffer with the ache of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Now, isn't it weird that um, this this teaching doesn't exist in the writings of the church fathers? Doesn't exist in, in the clear teaching of God's word either. Um, this is a brand new theology concocted by, well, Stephen Furtick. And uh, notice what it does. It sets up kind of a two-tiered system in Christianity. On the one tier, you've got those who are audacious in their faith, and then everybody else who suffers from an ache of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what this reminds me of? Yeah, Mormonism. Okay, and here's the reason why. I mean, those of you familiar with Mormonism, you know that, well, there's... Temple Mormons, those are the those are the Mormons who are really dedicated to Mormonism, and then well, there's Jack Mormons. Yeah, those Jack Mormons. I mean, they'll probably be saved, but yeah, well, we all know that they didn't try hard enough. They just didn't do what was necessary to attain godhood. Mm -hmm. But those Temple Mormons, they're busy making sure that they do everything that's necessary to become gods, right? So here we got a, we got another two-tiered system. We've got an entire group of people who, well, buy into Stephen Furtick's idea that you need to have audacious faith. And they're pulling it off. They have the audacity to ask God for the impossible, and they're seeing the impossible happen in their lives, supposedly. And then there's everybody else who suffers with the ache of the ordinary. You know, I just I wonder, think about it. Um, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to uh, the church in Colossae, you know, the, the, known as Colossians, um, the, in, that, uh, in that epistle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says to slaves in Colossae, Slaves, obey your masters. Oh, no. Can you imagine the ache of the ordinary those poor slaves felt? I mean... 
So do you think, uh, I mean, how come God didn't tell those poor slaves living in Colossae, yeah, I know you're suffering with the ache of the ordinary. Just have the audacity to ask God for the impossible, and you too can ascend to the second tier of Christianity, those who have audacious faith and can pray for the sun to stand still. Uh-huh, right, no. It gets, this gets more interesting. We continue. Could I ever possibly make a difference with my limited potential and my lack of experience? Could I? Could I? Could I? Why don't you talk about Jesus? What would you do with him? We're going to take the message of Sun Stand Still Faith and teach people how to pray audacious prayers so that they can be a part of a move of God. In- okay, so you're going to be part of a move of God by praying Sun Stand Still prayers. Not, you're not going to be part of the movement where your job is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. No, you're going to pray Sun Stand Still prayers so that you can tell everybody how, how much audacious faith you have. Notice the emphasis is on you, not Christ. In our generation, one of the wonderful things about being a young guy is that I'm full of passion, and I haven't yet learned that there's a such thing as impossibility. I believe God has... No, he knows that there's a such thing as impossibility. And the, the fact that he's a young guy, just it, here's the deal. He has not... Ha- he is, his, his conscience is not bound to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Uh, his conscience is bound to his own delusions and dreams. Furtick reads the Bible very narcissistically. Designed and wired every believer to live that way. We want to walk people practically through not only how do you believe God for the impossible, but how do you take action steps toward the impossible? What? Serious? So, I mean, do you suffer from the ache of the ordinary? Now we're going we're gonna to teach you not only how to pray for the impossible, we're going to teach you action steps that you can take in order to make the impossible happen. Uh-huh. Right. So you're the one who's doing the impossible, I see. Yeah. Do you find this theology anywhere in the scriptures? I don't find it. And no, you can't find it in Joshua chapter 10 because he allegorizes that text. Now, by the way, don't you think that if praying sun stand still prayers were really that important, that when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he would have said, flipping your Bible over to Joshua chapter 10 and let's learn how to pray. He didn't do that. Yeah, instead, Jesus, yeah, when you look at the prayer that Jesus taught the disciples, yeah, it seems to suffer from the ache of the ordinary. And, and think about it. I mean, how does the prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> Sounds like it's... I, the, Jesus' prayer that he teaches the disciples is just, well, chock full of the ordinary. Nothing audacious about praying for God's will be done and praying for daily bread. Then again, that same God also told slaves to obey their masters. Husbands love their wives. Fathers don't exasperate your children. Wives submit to your husbands. The Bible seems to be chock full of the ordinary. And notice that Stephen Furtick is trying to enlist people in the name of Christ to join a movement to pray sun stand still prayers and to pray for the impossible. But Jesus Christ has commanded his church to go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. I'm sorry, but uh, Stephen Furtick's movement is a competing movement, a competing movement to the mission that Jesus Christ has set his church on. And it has a competing gospel, by the way, too. It's a different gospel and a different movement. It does a great job of propping Stephen Furtick up, but it has very little, if anything, to do with Jesus Christ and the gospel and the scriptures. Let's continue. Hey, we want to walk people practically through not only how do you believe God for the impossible, but how do you take action steps toward the impossible? Law, not gospel. You've heard the voice of God speak vision into your life. Yeah, right. You've heard the voice of God speak vision into your life. This is just self-delusion. But what you're seeing isn't matching up with what you've heard. And I want to speak to you and encourage you that when there's nothing to see and there's just a cloud the size of a man's hand, that God is active and busy and capable in your life. Because without the willingness to act, you really don't have a vision at all for your life. You have Yeah, without the willingness to act, you don't really have a vision at all for your life. You got a verse that says any of that stuff, Stephen? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there isn't a single passage that says anything of the sort. So, I mean, that, that kind of lays the groundwork here so that you kind of see the direction that Stephen Furtick is coming from. Stephen Furtick, I mean, the, the type of person that he really appeals to is the person whose sin has, well, given, you know, has, has matured and the, the fruit has uh, come to, to, to mature itself and to ripen. And so, as a result of it, they got problems in their life and they need help. Well, Stephen Furtick is there to offer them help, a God who will help them achieve the impossible by them taking action steps and believing for the impossible and praying sun stand, still prayers. You know, because it's all about, you know, you overcoming the, the setbacks that you've experienced in your life as a result of your sin. Yeah, you've been fired from a job. I mean, are you experiencing financial difficulty? Is your... Uh, wife dissatisfied with you? Is your husband dissatisfied with you? Are your children disobedient? Um, uh, you know, are you are you unhappy with your career path? I mean, uh, the, oh, don't worry. Stephen Furtick has got the impossible solutions for you. All you got to do is pray some sun stand still prayers by praying for the impossible and taking the impossible action steps, and he'll and you know all of this in the name of Jesus. But see, that's the thing. Jesus is the wine. Stephen Furtick's message is the water that dilutes it. So this is a Jesus-flavored message that isn't, isn't the pure wine of the gospel. It's something very different. So now we're going to circle back. That kind of gives you an idea of you know, the narcissistic, bent-in-on-yourself kind of focus that Stephen Furtick has for what he does. And now we're going to ask, answer the question. Because um, remember, all of this is talking about uh, just you know some poor schlub on the internet pointed out that in the Elevation Worship C uh, CD that's just been released, there's a cut, there's a track called "The Gospel," and uh, he pointed out that there were some things that were missing in the gospel that Stephen Furtick preached, namely sin, Christ's atonement, and repentance. So, I mean, this is pretty simple stuff. I mean, this is not. Hard to figure out. Now, I understand. I totally get that poor Richard has less than 50 followers on Twitter. Poor guy. 
But you know what? We're going to we're going to do the objective work here to see if whether or not Stephen Furtick really preached the gospel, the biblical gospel in that uh on the Elevation worship CD. And to help us out with that, by the way, we first need to answer the question, what is the gospel? And in order to do that, we've got to actually open up the scriptures to take a look at how the Bible defines the gospel. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start at verse 1. So here's the idea. If you were to ask the question, what is the gospel? I don't get to give you my opinion. You don't get to give me your opinion. God's word gets to define it, period. Okay? Now, the Apostle Paul, this same Apostle Paul, uh, who, the Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is also the guy who re- wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia against the Galatian heresy. And in that epistle, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that if anyone, even an angel from heaven or he himself, that's what he says, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. Plain and simple. Different gospels send people to hell, and it doesn't matter if an angel it with shining bright yeah, comes to you and says, Thus saith the Lord, here's the gospel. If that gospel's different than the gospel that's given to us in Scripture, it ain't the gospel. So the question is, what's the gospel? The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15, gives us the gospel that he preached. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here Paul makes it clear. He's going to remind them of the gospel he preached, plain and simple. Here's what it is. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Plain and simple, the gospel has to do with Christ Jesus dying for our sins and being raised again from the grave on the third day. That's the gospel. Okay, You can unpack it many different ways. Another simple way of putting it is, is that Christ died for our sins and was raised again for our justification. All it boils down to is this, is that when it's the announcement, we are heralds of the good news. For instance, remember you know, back in the old days, you all seen that that uh, movie Newsies. Uh, you know, there there were kids that used to sell newspapers on the streets of Chicago, New York City, and other places. They would get the newspaper and they would you know shout out extra, extra, read all about it. You know, and 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 t- announce people what the news was. Okay, those newsboys didn't write a single story, not one. All they did was announce what was in the news. Our job as Christians is the same. Our job is to announce the gospel, not to modify it, not to twist it, not to turn it into something else. That's the work of the devil. It's the devil who wants to change the gospel into something that it isn't. So at its very core, the gospel, the good news, is the announcement that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that Jesus Christ 
was crucified for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. Now, the the imperative that goes along with the proclamation of the gospel is repentance and faith and trust in this good news for your sins to be forgiven. Okay, faith and trust in Christ for your good for your sins to be forgiven. So when we look in the book of Acts, when the apostles preached the gospel, this was always part and parcel of it. And the gospel imperative is repent and believe. That's why Jesus in Luke 24 says that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all generations, to all nations. Okay? So the idea there is is that we don't get to modify it. This is what we got to preach. And you and the gospel is is fighting is fighting ground. If somebody's mixing the gospel, diluting the gospel, preaching a different gospel, um, that puts them outside of the Christian faith. And if somebody to be marked as a heretic, somebody to be avoided, somebody who should not be listened to. So now, with that in mind, okay, we're going to listen to the track from the recently re- released Elevation Worship CD entitled the gospel and let's see if sin clear proclamation of sin repentance christ shed blood on the cross and repentance and the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed or if there's a different gospel okay plain and simple here we go here's stephen furtick the cut's called the gospel so we're supposed to hear the gospel let's see if he preached it here we go As we were singing that song, there's someone listening or watching this that needs a brand new start in Jesus Christ. You need a brand new start in Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Right now, wherever you are, if God is drawing you to himself, and you felt, as we were singing, you are making all things new. That this moment is meant to be the beginning of your new life in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Yeah, that's right. Second Corinthians 5.17 says if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Um, so how does somebody get in Christ? The old is gone. And the new has come. Right now, whether you're in this place... Notice the sappy music behind him. ...tonight, driving down the road, watching this on television, online, or by DVD, I want to give you the opportunity to say, this moment is the moment where Jesus Christ made all things new in my life. How? And for the person that is tired of the same old attempts to clean up your life, the same old dead paths to find joy, your past has haunted you, your future has seemed paralyzed. Your past haunts you and your future seems paralyzed. What does that even mean? Are you, are you talking about Jesus' return in glory to judge the living and the dead? Is that what you're referring to? That, you know, their future is that they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels because of the wrath of God against their sin? 
I don't think so. It sounds a little more temporal, doesn't it? Yeah, your future's paralyzed. Apparently, uh, maybe you're not getting ahead in your career like you wanted to, or you're not experiencing happiness on some level. Maybe you're bored. I don't know. No matter how you try, you can't get it together. And the beauty of the gospel is this, that Jesus came so that you would not have to get it together, but so that you could offer him the broken pieces of your fragmented life. So um, so the gospel is that the good news that I can offer Jesus the broken, fragmented pieces of my life. What would he want with them? I mean... It, it's, I mean, you're making Jesus sound like he's some kind of, you know, uh, you know, car collision auto body shop repair dude. You know, you you come in and you know your car has been dinged up. You know, you know, it's not in pristine condition anymore, and you're not happy with it because there's scratches and dents, and and you know, and maybe your fender's falling off. You offer Jesus the broken pieces of your car, and he'll mend it and turn it back into a brand new car for you. That's not really the gospel at all, and it turns Jesus into some kind of a repair dude. Um, where's repentance and Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of our sins? Which is gonna need you're gonna need to unpack what that means if you're gonna talk about the forgiveness of sins. You're gonna have to tell people what a sin is, you know, and what its consequences are. How you don't obey God how you rebel against him in thought, word, and deed, and how the punishment for all of that is eternal damnation in hell. It's for an eternity, an eternal suffering in the lake of fire because of your sinful rebellion against God. I'm not hearing that from him. Your uncertain future, and so that all things could be made new. Church, let's pray together. And for all of you who want to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, you pray this in your heart with me, and God will make all things new. This will be the beginning. So if you pray this magic prayer, um, then God's going to make all things new, and you've made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life by offering him your broken pieces. Isn't it weird? Because the gospel actually tells us that Jesus offered his broken body for us. This flips it on its head. Of the best days of your life and the beginning of an eternal relationship with a God who sent his son to make all things new. Let's pray together, church. Say this. Say, Heavenly Father, I need a new start. I need your grace. For what? What do you need God's grace for? I need your mercy. For what? What do I need God's mercy for? I give my life, all of my sins. God, you give your life. The good news is that Christ gave his life. This is 180 degrees backwards. This isn't the gospel. I turn from my own ways to trust in you. For, trust in him for what? Thank you, Jesus for dying for me what did he die for what does that even mean i believe you rose again to give me new life i place my hope in you make me a brand new person give me 
a brand new start. And I will live for you all the days of my life. Uh, yeah, you pray that prayer, you'll be lying. Let's clap our hands for people all over the world. That wasn't the gospel. Plain and simple, that was not the gospel. That was the gospel flipped on its head. It's a Pelagian assumption. Uh, number two, I mean, there wasn't enough gospel in there. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, there wasn't enough gospel to save anybody. That was a narcissistic, me-focused, I'm not happy with my life, my my life isn't going the way, my, my future is paralyzed, and I need some happiness, Jesus. I, I can't get to my happiness without you. Can you give me a new start so I can be happy? That's not the gospel. So um coming back to our um you know our tweet exchange um between Richard and um Stephen I think I think Richard had it straight up right. Uh Rick uh, not Rick Warren Stephen Furtick uh, that wasn't the gospel. There was I mean there was a mention of sin but I'm good nor good good night I don't even know what it meant. No atonement, no repentance. It's just I'm sorry that I didn't have a good outcome, and the, uh, my my future's paralyzed, and so I need Jesus to help me uh, overcome my my the obstacles in my way to a happy life. That's not the gospel. So I think Richard uh, called it straight. He called it right. I think he I think he got it. Uh, he landed it perfectly. His critique was solid. It had merit. What he pointed out was flat out right and true. And by the way, I know a lot about Stephen Furtick's preaching. I listen to a lot of his sermons. Um, and uh, and what he pointed out is, well, typical Stephen Furtick problem. That wasn't the gospel. So this comes back to our opening question. Does the number of followers that you have on Twitter dictate whether or not what you're saying is true or not biblically? Is it possible for somebody who has a huge following on Twitter. Is it possible for somebody who has a huge following on Twitter uh, to be wrong? I mean, Stephen Furtick has almost 70,000 followers on Twitter. Is it possible then that he's not telling the truth regarding what the gospel is? I mean, when somebody comes along who has less than 50 followers on Twitter... Does that mean that that person isn't speaking the truth? Let me point you to a, just a, a little bit of a historical note here. If you're not familiar with church history when it comes to what was called the Arian heresy and uh, the man who, wrote, who God raised up to fight it, uh, the, the man who, who is most influential in fighting, fighting the Arian heresy, this is the heresy that's still taught today by the Jehovah's Witness, uh, cult that Jesus Christ is not God by nature, but that He is a creature, a creation of God. Okay, uh, when that when that uh, fourth century heresy raised its head, it was taught by a guy by the name of Arius, and the person who God raised up to fight it was a guy by the name of Athanasius. And for much of the struggle, the vast majority of the visible church believed Arius and his heresy. And the vast majority did not believe Athanasius and his heresy. In fact, if you were if this fight were fought today, Arius would have, well, 
70,000 followers on Twitter, while poor Athanasius would probably have less than 100. That's, you know, contextualizing the story a little bit here. But I read uh, from an article on the Internet about Athanasius that um, rings true here. Writing about Athanasius, it says, Athanasius's most influential book was the book On the Incarnation, and it continues to help Christians to this day. Fantastic book, by the way. Uh, in understanding the importance of Jesus' divinity and humanity. In other works, he distinguished himself as a leading apologist defending Christianity, not only against the Aryan threat, but also against uh, pagan and Jewish opposition to Christianity. Other influential works by Athanasius include his Easter or Festal Letter of 367 A.D., which is often credited as being the earliest surviving statement of what the uh, of the books of the New Testament canon. Quote, The whole world is against you, one colleague once exclaimed to Athanasius when it looked like the entire Roman Empire was lapsing into Arianism. Unperturbed, Athanasius replied, Well, then it's Athanasius against the world. These words, usually known in Latin as Athanasius contra mundum, have rung out down the halls of history as an inspiration to all those who have held fast to the truth against powerful and even numerical opposition. Reflecting on this in his introduction to a translation of Athanasius's book on the Incarnation, C.S. Lewis once commented, Athanasius stood for the Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled. When it looked as if all of, civil, of the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arius, into one of those sensible, synthetic religions which are so strongly recommended today, and which then as now included among other devotees many highly cultivated clergymen, to his glory, it is to his glory that Athanasius did not move with the times. Athanasius Contramundum. Absolutely. Richard, let the story of Athanasius give you hope. Let it be Richard Contramundum. Even if you have less than a hundred followers on Twitter for the rest of your remaining days, hold fast to the truth and to the gospel that you preach to those inmates at the Harris County Jail. Because I'm convinced that since you know the difference between the true gospel and the gospel that Stephen Furtick preaches, that those inmates at the Harris County Jail are hearing about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and his glorious resurrection from the grave on the third day for their justification. They're not hearing that, though. Not from Stephen Furtick. At least not on that Elevation Worship CD. Didn't hear it. And uh, Richard was right to point it out. All right. Um, as you can tell, um, <laughs> I ended up dealing only with one topic today. We're going to take a break, pay some bills, and uh, when we come back, we're going to go into our sermon review. Our sermon today is a sermon I picked it specifically because of the fact that the guy preaching it from uh, Capital City Church in Columbus, Ohio, um, he well, he's got the same hermeneutical problem that Stephen Furtick has. And that is is that he's taken Christ out of the center of the Scriptures. The scriptures are about Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus rebuking the Pharisees say that uh, um, 
You diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is they that testify of me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. The scriptures are about Jesus, but when you make it about yourself, you lose the entire content of the scriptures. You lose the message of the gospel to boot. So we're going to listen to a sermon today preached by a guy who, well, thinks the Bible's somehow about him. So, um, <laughs> And uh, we'll have to get to the uh, the other story about the mission of the church from Michael Horton's blog on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thanks for calling Saddleback Customer Service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like to return the Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, the gospel has to do with being forgiven for your sins and averting the wrath of God by the shed blood of Christ because you've deserved hell. Tough to preach it without that. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith, and that's on a monthly basis. It's a great way to to continue to support us, and by joining our crew, it makes it so that uh, you know the more crew members we have, uh, the 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 more we can better budget uh, our expenses every month because we're also trying to grow as well as um, you know basically we're trying to create a fighting for the faith empire you know <laughs> yeah not really but anyway it, it that's a great way to support us because uh, we truly need to have a, you know, a predictable giving on a month to month basis in order to keep doing what we're doing if you would like to uh, make a a one time contribution though and specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You do that by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, you know, since you know, we're, I'm completely off at the moment today, but that's all right. Let's do this here. I'm going to cue up our sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Capital City Church, Columbus, Ohio, and the pastor is Shane Hart. The name of the sermon is The Key to Victory. Now, the reason why this is not a good sermon is because when you make the Bible about yourself, not about what Christ has done for you, you end up losing the gospel, and the Bible doesn't make any sense. And, uh, well, unfortunately, Shane, mm, he um, kind of biffs it so badly that he can't get out of his own way, and as a result of it, we don't hear a clear exposition of the biblical text or the gospel and we hear a lot about Shane 
And this is the same hermeneutical problem that Stephen Furtick suffers from as well. All right, so without any further ado, let me kill the music here. Here is Shane Hart in his sermon, The Key to Victory. Here we go. In the past couple of weeks, as we've talked about momentum, as we've talked about forward motion, we, we've seen that momentum wins. Momentum wins. Uh, the, the phrase, stop on a dime, is, it's, I understand it. I know why we use it. We, we, we use it. It's, it's more figurative than literal, of course, because you know if, if something is in motion and it literally stops in the span of a dime, we usually call that a wreck. That's usually called an accident. You know, if a car traveling 60 miles an hour can stop in the, in the expanse of a dime, there's a whole lot of energy that all of a sudden has to come together, and that's usually not pretty when it happens. Many of us have been in car wrecks. Many of us have seen car wrecks. Uh, I personally, one of my favorite TV shows is Mythbusters. And Mythbusters has done a myth a couple of times called the pancake car. They first tried it by having a car wedged between two semis that came together at 50 miles an hour and hit this car. And they were trying to see if they could totally pancake the car. They, they, they couldn't quite do it. And so they, they ramped it up as only Mythbusters can. And they put a car on a sled. And they ran that sled at 300 miles an hour and ran it into a concrete wall. And that car was no more. Because when you stop on a dime from momentum, there's going to be problems. There's a wreck because momentum wins. Momentum wins. It wins every time. We also saw that we go where we look. We go where when you're driving down the road, if you start looking over here too long, you're going to be going that way. We go where we look. In the book of Ezekiel, we saw that we must finish what God calls us to do. God might do something amazing. We, he might use us. He might, we might get to see this incredible thing of God happen as Ezekiel was standing in the valley of dry bones and the bones came together and flesh appeared on him and all of a sudden those bones became bodies. But if he didn't finish what God called him to do, if he didn't finish the prophecy of God, that valley of dry bones was gonna become a valley of rotting corpses. We must finish what God has called us to do. And in the book of Nehemiah, we learn that we must pray and be willing to work hard. We must pray and be willing to work hard. I'll be honest with you, saying yes to God is very simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Obeying God is simple. We just do what he says, but it's not easy. It requires hard work. It requires effort. It requires energy. We must pray and be willing to work hard. Today, as we talk about the key to victory, we find that it takes resolve and commitment to maintain momentum. It takes resolve and commitment to maintain momentum in our lives, to maintain that momentum going in the right direction, going where we need to go. I recently have gotten into cycling a little bit, and I know I don't look like a cyclist, but I really enjoy doing it, and I'm really finding that it relaxes me. It's something that... it's. If I don't go cycling for a few days, I begin to miss it. I didn't think I'd ever be at that point, but I'm there. And Pastor Brent, this past summer, he rode in the Pan, Ohio, which goes from Cincinnati to Cleveland on a bicycle, 328 miles over four days. Somehow he's talked me into going on it next year. 
Uh, I'm not quite sure, but yeah, you know, I've got 328 miles on, you know, that little narrow bicycle seat. But one thing I've learned about cycling, and if you've ever watched the Tour de France or you've ever watched those long distance races, they can build their momentum, but to maintain that momentum over the long haul, to maintain that momentum over tens and dozens and hundreds of miles, it takes resolve. It takes resolve. Runners know this. Marathoners use the same expression. Cyclists use it. Other sports use it as well. And we've talked about it before, but there's a, there's a point in doing that where you hit the wall, not literally, hopefully, but you hit the wall figuratively. And it's that point where you don't think your body can go on. But something happens. If you can push through those moments, if you can push through that wall, on the other side of it, you find there's an energy there that you didn't know existed. But it takes resolve to get to that point. It takes commitment to maintain momentum in the right direction. You can turn with me in your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Just got to pause there. I mean, I just let, let him run out there. Uh, that was almost five minutes straight of, I don't know what, momentum. That momentum wins out and all of, What is he even talking about? So, I mean... Just pausing right there. We're going to now go to Matthew 16, and Matthew 16 has something to do with momentum? Really? Um, yeah, I'm not buying it. Um, I know Matthew 16 rather well, and there's a kind of an important thing going on in Matthew 16. If you have your Bible, flip on over there. But let's uh, let's let um, Shane just spin out a little bit more on this momentum stuff. I mean, we I don't want to break his momentum, but we continue. Teen, as we look at this issue of the key to victory, as we look at this issue of resolve and commitment in the life of Jesus, we're going to look at the resolve and the commitment that he had in the path that God was taking him. We need to understand that whenever an individual or a group of individuals are trying to do something great for God or trying to obey God, this is what I, I meant a se second ago when I said obeying God is simple. It's just not easy because whenever we set out to do anything for God, whether it's as an individual or as a group, there will be opposition. There will be opposition. We saw that briefly in Nehemiah last week, and I didn't have time to go into the full context or story of it, but he faced severe opposition in trying to rebuild that wall. We will face opposition. There will be naysayers. There will be people that tell you, you can't do that. When, when you reveal the vision of God, the direction of God, people are going to say, you can't do that. Who are you? Even Jesus heard that. He was in his hometown. He was trying to minister and heal people. And even people came along and said, wait a second. We know this guy. We, we, we saw him when he was here, when he was a little kid. We know his family. His brothers and sisters live among us. Who is he? He can't be doing this. There will be naysayers. There will be those who actively, intentionally work against what God is trying to do. There will be those that will come in and betray us. We will face Judas in our life from time to time. Really? So uh, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to face Judas. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, we, we've got a big problem here. If you're reading the Bible in this way, then you're not reading it right. You're reading it backwards, upside down, and you know, completely with the wrong focus. You ain't the focus of the Scriptures, and the fact that Jesus had a Judas is not really 
uh, a, a story to warn you about the Judas that you're going to face. Oh, boy. We continue. We will have someone that steps in and intentionally works against us, tries to thwart what God is doing, intentionally bringing hurt and distraction to our lives. But there will also be those that are well-intentioned, good-hearted people. Their heart's in the right spot. Their intentions are in the right place. But they're wrong. They're just wrong. They've got good intentions. They've got good meaning. But they're wrong. They're they're, they're wrong. And they're going to come in and they're going to be a distraction. They're going to be opposition to what God's trying to do. They don't think they're being opposition to God. So God's got something he's going to do in your life. And there's going to be Judases out there who are going to be distractions to keep you from doing it. Okay. What are you talking about? But they will be. They're just wrong in that moment. They're good-hearted, well-intentioned. Jesus had a large following of people most everywhere he went. The Bible talks over and over about uh, Jesus being in places so crowded others couldn't get in. Or at one time the crowd became so big it was backing Jesus up into the water uh, by the Sea of Galilee. And he had to get into a boat because the people were literally crowding in that close. And he had to get in the boat and come out from shore a little ways so he could teach the people and not be overly. He had this crowd following him most everywhere he went. And we know he had 12 men who were especially close to him, 12 men that he chose as his disciples. They were his core. They were there. Of course, one of those would betray him intentionally. One of those is one of those individuals that came in and intentionally made a decision to work against what God was doing and betray Jesus. But there were three of the 12 who were especially close to him. Peter, James, and John. They were more than just in a sailboat. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle of Jesus. They were the ones that were there. They were the ones that saw things and heard things and spent time with Jesus that even the others in the 12 never did. And of course, there was one. Good old Peter. I like Peter. I like Peter a lot. The reason why I like Peter is because Peter is known a little bit for being rash. And okay, I want to point something out here. He's talking about... About the Bible, but he's not actually teaching it. Hmm. Somewhat impetuous. Peter is known for speaking first and thinking later. I like that because that makes me feel like there's still some hope for me because I can speak first and think later sometimes. And I like Peter. He he was bold and he was out there and he jumped and when. He had an opportunity to do something. I mean, he don't, Peter was not one of those ones that when he would go to the swimming pool, that he would go to the shallow end and walk in the stairs. Peter was the type that if he was at a swimming pool, he went to the deep end and dove in because he was all into everything that he did. And he was quite probably Jesus's best friend when Jesus walked this earth as a man. He was quite probably the best friend of Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Uh, what? <laughs> Matthew 16, verse 21? Um, <laughs> really? Okay, we're going to skip all the important parts of that, of this passage and this chapter and skip right to 21. Okay. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me. Does anyone else find it like disturbing at this point that the reason why we're reading this passage is because he's already told us that there's going to be Judases in our life. And that, you know, there's going to be people who, you know, if we, if, we're, if we do something for God, there's going to be people who are going to try to stop us. And so the whole point of this passage is to this, see this is what Jesus went through. And so you, you, you're going to have this happen to you, too. What am I supposed to do for God again? Um, okay. Um, yeah. And, and we're missing like the whole <laughs> the whole meat of this chapter. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, it's not about you. I promise this passage is just like not about you at all. In fact, I guarantee you, if you were to read this passage in either English or in Koine Greek, you would not find you in this passage at all. <laughs> Matthew 16 is about Jesus and what he's going to do for us, at least at this point it was in the future, but it's what he did for us. <clears throat> Here, um, let's start, let's back up just a little bit, you know, like to verse 13, because that's like the major piece of this chapter. Weird that he'd miss this, but see, that's what happens. When you make the Bible about you and not about Jesus, the, the Jesus pieces of the of the scripture, well... They're not that important because they get in the way of you. Let me read <clears throat> Matthew sixteen thirteen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, notice the question, who do people say Jesus is? So now the question is, who do people, who do you say I am? Here's the big part here. Get ready? Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That is huge. I mean, unpacking what that means, just that confession of faith, Peter is is basically confessing that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that he's the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. All, all of Israel was waiting for the Messiah, and here Peter is not only saying Jesus is the Messiah, but he's confessing him to be God, okay? Because, <laughs> I mean, because in the Jewish mindset, Somebody who is the son of God is equal with God. Jesus is God. That's what he's saying here. This is huge. Okay. Notice it's all about Jesus. So um, Jesus said to him, no, 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 that's not what I am. It's all about you, Peter. Let me, no, no I'm sorry. That's not what we said. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
on this rock, the rock of his confession, on this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. God, Jesus is going to build his church on this confession, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay? Then from there, okay, so now we got Jesus, you know, we we got it out in the open, who he is. And Matthew then, in the narration of Jesus' life, tells this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. Hearing the gospel here? Uh Uh-huh. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Just the idea that Jesus is going to be killed? This is this is unheard of. No, the Messiah is supposed to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and to kick out the Roman Empire and get rid of all the evildoers. And and Peter's supposed to be like, you know, head of state, you know, or, you know, the viceroy or, you know, some major position of power in this kingdom. Right. And Jesus says he's going there to die. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now here's the deal. This next part of this passage, if you don't rightly handle this text, and by and what I mean by that is you use the Pauline text to make it clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone, as a gift, then what happens is that you're going to hear this passage in such a way that you're going to think that you earn your salvation by what you do, but that's not what this passage is saying. This is talking about the judgment, okay? Truly I say to you, okay, here's what he says. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Now keep this in mind, okay? On the judgment day, when Christ returns, the books are going to be opened, okay? Now, I know as soon as I make, make mention of this, of this very real fact, your sinful nature is going, oh, no, you know what you did. Yeah, you know what you did. So you hear that the books are going to be open, and the first thing that comes to your mind is, oh, no, what's written in that book about me? What have I done? I know what I've done. I'm in trouble, right? He's going to repay everyone for based on the works that he's done, right? Listen. For a Christian, when the books are open, there will be no sins, none mentioned. 
not one. Every sin that you've committed has been atoned for and propitiated by Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Remember, Jesus Christ went on trial and was found guilty. Was you saying he was innocent? No, he wasn't. Because your sin and mine was placed on him. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And in Christ, those of us who've been brought to repentance and faith and trust in him, we, all of our sins were on Christ. They have already been punished. Jesus was the one found guilty of them. And his righteousness, his perfect sinless Righteousness is imputed to you as if you're the one who lived it. Simple. So the books will be opened, and the only thing recorded in those books will be good works for Christians. And God will repay you for every good work. And here's the best part. You're saying, yeah, but I, even my good works are still tainted with sin. Some of the good works, I, even my best good works, I still suffer from bad motivation. Yeah, they do. But all that bad motivation has been forgiven by Christ. So even any little good work that you do, any little good work that you do, will be seen as a perfect good work. Because of you, you're in Christ. Not so the unbeliever. Because when the books are opened, all of their sins are still there. And they will have to give an accounting and pay for every one of their sins. That's the scary part about it. So when Jesus says that... Um, that he's going to repay everybody for what they've what they've done. Keep in mind, Jesus Christ took your punishment on himself, and that's what he's referring to here. That's saying that he's got to go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests and die. And he even makes a reference to the fact that his his death is going to be by crucifixion by saying, "Take up your cross and follow me." Jesus here at this point is. You know, in 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 a, in a word picture, is t- pointing to guys. I'm taking up my cross and heading to Jerusalem right now. Take up your cross and follow me too. Right, and that's what's going on here. I mean, there's amazing gospel in this passage. There's amazing ability to preach Christ and what He's done and offer true hope. True hope when it comes to the day of judgment and the wrath of God. Because what is it that can silence the wrath of God? You know deep down inside you, maybe even not even that deep, if I scratch the surface of your conscience and your psyche, you know that you deserve hell. And you're right, you do. But if you are in Christ, there is no wrath to come. All of it has been taken care of by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So when Christ returns to repay you for your works, it's the most amazing thing ever. Even all of your good works that are tainted with sin, Christ sees them as perfect because of him. 
It's an amazing thing, the, the biblical gospel. Unfortunately here, that's not what we're going to hear from Shane. We continue. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Why did Jesus call Peter Satan? I mean, Peter's his best friend. Peter's as loyal as they come. Peter's there. I mean, he's the one that said, Jesus, I'm willing to die with you. Of course, we know he ended up denying Christ, but in the moment, his intentions were right. And when he comes to Jesus and he's saying this to him, Jesus calls him Satan. That's that's a strong name to call somebody. I mean, that, that's, that's harsh. That, 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 that really is. I mean, you know, if, I, if, I walked, if I walked up to you and said, all right, Satan, get out of here. You're like, excuse me? All right, well, I'm out of here. You know, I don't, need, I don't need you. That's harsh. And especially if it's coming from someone who you admire, someone you look up to, someone who's a mentor, teacher, friend. Like, get behind me, Satan. And I ask, it's more than just harsh. I mean, what's, what Peter was literally doing was taking, was playing the role of the devil to keep Christ from going to the cross. Hello? Ask the question, why? Was Peter possessed in this moment? You know, we know that Jesus cast demons out. If he cast, you know, demons out of Mary Magdalene and she became one of his closest followers, maybe, you know, maybe Peter's possessed in this moment and Jesus is recognizing and he, he's got to cast Satan out. Peter wasn't possessed. Peter wasn't possessed by Satan. He wasn't possessed by a demon in that moment. Well, maybe he's just an agent of Satan at this, at this time. Maybe Satan has somehow influenced Peter to, and Jesus is speaking. I heard a, I heard a preacher say one time that, in, in talking about this passage of, of Scripture, that when Jesus said this, he really wasn't looking at Peter. He was looking at Satan who was standing next to Peter. Well, first of all, I find no evidence of that in Scripture. And second of all, I don't think that's the point of it being in Scripture. I I don't believe that's the lesson we have to learn here, that Satan was actually standing next to Peter at this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I don't think that the lesson that we have to learn here is that somehow this is, you know, Jesus trying to, you know, show us that, you know, if you got important things to do for God, that there's, you know, there's always going to be somebody who's going to try to keep you from doing it. It's not about me. No, it's... Not that at all. It's because in this moment, Jesus was making a point to Peter and to the rest of the disciples and to us today that when we allow our own thoughts and our own biases and our own feelings and our own wants and our own intentions to come to the surface and come to the forefront, sometimes we can say something that though it's well-meaning and well-intentioned and though it's something that's coming from a right heart, it's wrong because we're speaking against the will of God. See, Peter was speaking against the will of God. He was speaking against the plan of God in that moment. He he was saying, oh, Jesus, no, 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 that's not going to happen to you. That can't happen to you. That's not going to be you. But it's because he didn't have the mind of God and understand 
Oh, Peter in that moment wasn't intentionally trying to speak against what God wanted. Peter in that moment wasn't trying to speak and stop the redemption of mankind. No, Peter was looking at a friend, a mentor, who was talking about going through a very, very hard thing, an unimaginable thing. Peter didn't want it for him. Peter didn't want that to happen. You know, Peter didn't want Jesus speaking negativity. You know, he didn't want him speaking that. He's like, you know, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Don't you hate it when Jesus speaks negativity? Oh, man. I mean, I'm sure Joel Osteen has probably erased this passage from the Bible. I mean, because Jesus was speaking negatively. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's the thing. When you put this through the lens of the word faith heresy, the reason why Jesus was hanging dead on the cross is because, well, he negatively confessed. He said he was on his way to die and to rise again. Well, see, yeah, that's what it, that's what happened. He just didn't, he just didn't give a positive confession. That's why they hung him on the cross because he was speaking negativity. Hi, hi, hi. No, come on. Let's be positive here. Positive thinking. Oh, he's well-intentioned and well-meaning, but he was wrong. It's easy for us to be on the wrong side of God's plan. We allow our reasoning and our wants to get in the way. We allow our reasoning, our thinking, our understanding to be what is guiding or to what's in the way at the moment. Peter was reacting. Kind of like the way you're, what you're doing right here, huh? Yeah, with this sermon. <laughs> he was reacting from his heart instead of responding from God's heart. I understand that. <laughs> What's that even mean? <laughs> my, my, my first inclination is always to react from my heart instead of to step back and take time to respond from God's heart. We've got to learn to do that. We've got to learn to respond from God's heart, not to react from our own. See, the problem in this moment is... So i got to learn how to react from God's heart, yeah. What does that even mean? You got any practical steps on how to apply that one? Peter was being led by the Spirit, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was human spirit. It's human spirit. We've got to be very, very careful. Yeah, we've got it. We've got it. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be careful. We've got to be very careful of telling someone or believing or acting or coming under the premise that we're being led of the Spirit if we're being led by our human spirit, not by the Holy Spirit. Because there is a big difference. We can't always tell the difference because we've allowed our own wants and our own understanding and our own reasoning to get in the way in the moment. And there's some areas where it's easier for us than others. The more personal of a thing it is, the, the more personally attached and emotionally attached we are to a person or to a thing, in that it's really hard in, in that to differentiate between Holy Spirit and human spirit sometimes because we're so closely attached. We're so-, so do you have some practical tips on how we can uh, figure out the, dis- the difference between the two? Because I just, yes, yeah, call me silly. I thought Matthew 16 was about Jesus, and somehow I'm, you know, there's some life application here that I have been missing all these years. Who knew? So closely involved. That's why sometimes we need the help of an outside source. Jesus got Peter's attention. He got his attention. 
And he let him know and understand. Right now, you're speaking against the will of God. So though you're not intentionally siding with Satan, you are. Because you're wrong. Oh, your heart's right, your intention, but you're wrong. It was opposition. Yeah, Jesus didn't say anything about Peter's heart being right there in the moment. Uh, finding stuff in the text, and they ain't there. And how hard that must have been at first for Jesus to have someone so close to him. To have someone who was so tight and, and so connected to him be speaking against God's plan. And it's very easy for us to, when we've got someone close to us and they might be a naysayer in that moment, but we know what God's called us to do. It takes resolve. And what would that be? Resolve to push through that wall. It takes resolve to push past. It takes resolve to stay on the path and the direction that God has for us. Because sometimes the opposition is from within, not just from without. Sometimes the opposition is close. And it's coming from an unexpected source. And what are they opposing exactly? And then in verse 24, we have that famous statement from Christ. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he goes on into that part about how if we want to gain everything, we have to lose everything. If I have time, I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. But he must deny himself. Deny himself. Take up his cross. It's not an easy thing by any stretch. See, the key to victory is it starts with us denying self. Mm, so that's the key to victory. Got it. Okay. We have to deny victory. Uh, victory over what? Deny ourself. We have to deny our wants. We have to deny our desires. We have to deny sometimes even our background and our upbringing and our understanding and our reasoning and our thinking and our hopes and our ambitions and, and our dreams. We have to deny those things to take on the things of God, to take on the things that God has for us. It's a denying of self. It's a complete surrender. It's a complete surrender of all of these things. It's a complete surrender of even our right to choose for ourselves, Of even our right to choose what we think. Of even our right to choose what we desire. We have to give that up to take on what God has for us. To take on the direction and the path that he has, that he wants it's a commitment. It's a steadfastness. And commitment and resolve that carries us through even in the midst of peril, even in the midst of danger, when things, when things are not safe. We have friends who, when they were preparing to go to the mission field, they were preparing to go to a country that at the time was very, very unstable. That there were rumors of war and there was glimpses and hints of an uprising and opposition and rebel forces and it just was not a safe place and they had young kids and they're preparing to go and people would come to especially the wife because you know when we we think we mean well and about someone's children it's easier to go to mom because mama's instinct is so strong especially when it comes to the safety of children and so they come to the wife and say how can you allow him to take you and those kids to that country? It's not safe. It's not safe. Don't you fear for your children? Don't you fear for what would happen? And I loved her response. Her response was, 
you know what? It is a dangerous place. But I've realized and determined that the safest place for my children is for my husband and I to be in the center of God's will. Safest place to be is in the center of God's will, even if around us there's peril, even if around us there's danger. The safest place to be. Oh, it doesn't guarantee that nothing bad is going to happen to us physically. I, I, can, I, I could tell you stories of missionaries who've been shot, of families who've been ravaged, of things that have happened. But when it comes down to our spiritual well-being, our spiritual safety, our spiritual walk and position with God, the safest place to be is always in the center of God's will. We must deny self and surrender. Yeah, what exa- Where's the center of his will? What are you talking about? And have that commitment, that resolve, even in the midst of peril and opposition, even when we're betrayed. I have a feeling every one of us in this room has felt betrayal in some way or another at some point in our lives. We've been betrayed. And the thing about betrayal is betrayal can't come from an enemy. Uh, oh boy. Because we expect it. Betrayal comes from somebody close, a family member, a friend, a confidant, a teacher, a mentor. Betrayal comes from somebody close to us. Even in the midst of peril, opposition, betrayal, rebuke, And even in the well-meaning but wrong words of a close friend, we must stay resolved. We must stay resolved. Because see... Resolved to do what? Sometimes people who are speaking into our life, they don't have the mind of God on that matter just yet. People will come to me from time... What matter? Time to time and ask advice or tell me that God is speaking something, something to them and they are looking for a response from me. And I'll be honest with you, I very rarely give a direct response. If God is speaking something to your life, I'm very rarely going to give a direct response to it. And the reason why is because I may not have the mind of God in that matter. I may not know the mind of God for you in that situation. And if I don't know the mind of God and I speak something and it's not of God and you follow the advice because I spoke it. Well, I'm in Peter's position at that moment. I don't have the mind of God. And Oh, really? Okay. So, uh, so now then you become and you go into Peter's position. What are you even talking about? I might be well-meaning and well-intentioned and I might even think about it and but if it's not the mind and the heart of God, then I might as well be speaking for Satan. So I'm very careful and don't very often speak directly when people ask. Oh, I, I, you're welcome to ask. Come and bring anything you want. Say anything like that you want to me and we'll talk it through and I'll, I'll talk it with you and I'll ask questions and I'll help you see a couple of different sides of it. But when it comes down to it, you have to determine and you have to decide if God is speaking to that to you, are you going to do it? And how are we supposed to figure this out? Man. We must make sure that we have the mind of God, whether it's for our own life, our own decisions, or the decisions and directions and decisions and path of others. Must make sure we have the mind of God. 
Apparently that's what this Matthew 16 is all about. You kind of figuring out if, uh, you know, if you're walking the, the path of the mind of, you know, whatever this Matthew 16 isn't about you. It really isn't. Must deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow him. Taking up the cross here in modern America today. It either comes across as the symbolic ideal of a lifestyle or it comes across as some individual who's maybe a little more misguided or who the world would call weird or even we would call weird because they're walking around with a physical piece of wood shaped in a cross on their back. Remember the guy back in the 80s who walked across the U.S. carrying a cross. I don't know if God told him to do that or not. I know it's kind of weird, but I know God asks people to do weird things from time to time, and that's okay. So I'm not going to speak to whether God called him to do that or not. You know what's weird is that uh, God calls pastors to preach the word and to preach Christ and him crucified. Um, apparently, we've now wrestled the entire biblical text from Matthew 16 and made it about you and me. And so you see, what you've got to do is you've got to learn how to hear God's voice and then if someone opposes you, you need to tell them that they're opposing the will of God, just like Jesus opposed Peter, and they're, they're playing the role of Satan. So, And then you need to take up a cross. Yeah, okay. I just know God hasn't called all of us to do that. Very few people is God going to call to actually do that, to physically pick up a piece of wood shaped as a cross and carry it. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross. It's not just a symbolic ideal of a lifestyle, and it's not physically carrying around a piece of wood, but it's taking on. You think you could like talk about Jesus and what he really did on the real cross? That you know that one on the plan and the design of God. As we humble ourselves before Him, as we follow His path, as we live a life of obedience to Him, wherever that path and wherever that. Um, yeah, I hate to break it to you. If we were to take a look at your life, Shane, um, yeah, your obedience would come up way short. And that uh, obedience to God's not the gospel. Uh, it's your lack of obedience that requires you to need the gospel. <sighs> that direction and wherever it is that he's taking us, whatever it means, we follow. Whatever it means, wherever he leads, we go. We humble ourselves and we say yes to God wherever it is. Part of the problem of coming down to the will of God and following God is so often we want to know what the will is before we say yes. It's, it's kind of like going into a restaurant and if you've ever traveled abroad much and you've gone to a restaurant in a country where you don't know the language, it, if they don't have pictures on the menu and you don't have any understanding of what, what that language is, you're going to be in trouble. Now, it's one thing going to Italy or Spain or someplace where some of the words look kind of familiar and where, you know, we do eat th that kind of food here. And so we have some understanding maybe of what those things would be. But go to Shanghai and have a menu put in front of you. Most, most of us would be like fried rice anywhere, you know. What does this have to do with anything? Because none of the letters, none of the anything, if there's no picture there where we can point and say this, we're in trouble. And we're not comfortable in that situation. 
Tell you what, I'll point to a picture of Jesus on the cross. Why don't you tell me about that? We've got to rely on someone else to order for us or someone else to know the language and to get the... And so now we've got to trust someone else to put something in front of us that we can eat. And if you've gone on missions trips, you've probably been in that scenario where they've placed something in front of you that you're not sure you can eat. I've got to, I should have put this picture up there. I've got a picture of Alina and uh, another lady on a missions trip in Africa eating ground nut stew, which is rice with a peanut sauce on top of it. Yeah, that's great. Um, What does this have to do with Matthew 16 again? And they serve it usually with a fish head in the bowl. Some of you are like, I was hungry, but not anymore. I mean, you know. We got to trust. As a matter, we go in. It cracks me up. Go into McDonald's. People are standing there looking at the menu. It hasn't changed. I could tell you what was on McDonald's menu. But we go in. Why? Because we want to see the menu. We want to see all the options. How? Don't raise your hand. But how many of you go to a restaurant, you look at the menu, you look it over, you read through it, you put it down, and you order the same thing you got last time? But you still look at the menu. I can start naming restaurants, and some of you could tell me right off the bat what you had last time, and the time before, and the time before, and the time before, and that's what you're going to order next time. But when you go, you're going to look at the menu. The problem with God's will so often, we want to look at the menu before we order. We want to look at the menu before we say yes. The thing with God's will is, it's not a menu. It's a map with directions. It's that annoying voice coming from the little box attached to your windshield. Saying, recalculating, recalculating, make a U-turn in 100 feet. I mean, God's will is a GPS directional map taking us to a specific point, a specific way. And when we say yes to God, we're saying yes to that without seeing the whole map. When we say yes to that, we're saying yes to God and all we can see is the street we're on right now. Taking up our cross means following his path wherever that path leads. But you're going to need some kind of like water witching device to figure out what that path is or to find it. Good night. Yeah. Wherever that direction takes us. And we need to understand the cross is not nice. The cross is not cute. The cross is not decorative. Oh, I know we have decorative crosses. I'm not talking about that. I'm not, I'm not talking about those nice wrought iron things we stick in our yards and on our walls. No, I'm talking about the cross. It's not cute. It's not decorative. It's not nice. The cross is a symbol of torture and death. More than a symbol of it, why don't you talk about Jesus' torturous death for our sins and how our sins put them there, you know? This would be a great time to actually preach the gospel. I mean, you're talking about crossy things at the moment. Might as well take advantage of it. It's what it is. It's what it was. It's a symbol of torture and death not pleasant, but yet God has called us 
to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. But he did it first. He did it first. He led the way. But it takes resolve. We know if, if, if we've studied scripture. It wasn't it Jesus who had the resolve? He, I mean, one translation, you know, talks about how he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. That sounds like a lot of resolve. Why don't we talk about his resolve? We've heard enough sermons. We know that there comes a point in Jesus' life where he's in the garden. He looks up to his father and says, all right, Father, God, if there's any other way, please let it happen now. If there's any other way for this to be accomplished, tell me now. Let's, let's think of it now. But whatever, nevertheless, not what I want, what you want. It takes resolve. Yep, and Jesus had a ton of it for us because he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. You get what I'm saying? Why don't you preach him? Instead, we're, it's like he's wrestling this text away from Christ and making it about us. This is just Jesus setting us, setting an example for us of what it's like to have a lot of resolve. Uh-huh. Well-meaning close friend comes and says, no, no, Jesus, this can't happen to you. But the resolve of Jesus within to obey the path and the plan of God, the direction that God had for him, Jesus did what he needed to do in that moment. Yeah, he did what he needed to do. I mean, wow, sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, aren't you glad that Jesus did what he needed to do in that moment? I mean, so that he could set a good example for us and show us that we too can just, you know, do what needs to be done in the moment. Because, you know, if Jesus did it, then you can do it too. Yeah. It's not the gospel. It's something completely different. And this is what happens when you take Jesus out of the center of the scripture and the scriptures being about him and try to wrestle them in such a way that you make them about yourself. You end up losing the gospel. And you, any coherent thinking whatsoever regarding what the Bible's actually saying. The path that God has called us to as a church, it's not an easy path. There's a price to pay. It's going to hurt. It's going to cost us. I don't say this to put anybody... Yeah, it costs Jesus, so that means it'll cost you too, yeah. There's a price to pay, yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? Anybody on the spot, I don't say this to make anybody feel bad, but a year from now, we're going to go through some, something as a church that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Greg and Kelly are going to plant a church over on the east side, and we've already got some families that have committed to go with them. And these are good. These are people who've been a part of this church for a long time. These are these are people we love. These are people we love seeing week in and week out. These are people who are involved. It's going to hurt when they go plant their church. But let me also say this. And ladies, you can attest to this even better than I can. Childbirth hurts, but when you hold that baby, it's an experience you can't even explain in words. It's going to hurt to plant that church. There's a price to pay, but it's going to be awesome. Uh, okay. As we watch what God does through that work and through those that go with them, as we watch that church grow and, and reach people who are far from God in an area that, quite honestly, Capital City can't reach because it's too far away. People won't drive except for a few Strange ones like the rolls. People won't, and the Nivens, you know, people won't drive from Blacklick all the way to Upper Arlington to go to church every Sunday. 
you know, and we've got New Albany and Gahanna. And yeah, you guys are weird, by the way, but I understand. My family did it too for a while. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be awesome. The plan of God, it hurts, but it's going to be awesome. And it takes resolve. It takes commitment. It takes following the path and the plan and the direction of God no matter what. But see, what we can't miss is the end. We can't miss that moment. We can't, and even Jesus alludes to it here. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Did you catch it? I'm sure you did because... Catch what? Because we have the advantage of time. Because I warned you, there's something awesome there. It'd be very easy, and and this is what Peter was focused on. Peter was focused on go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed. That's what Peter heard. That's what Peter focused on. That's what Peter responded to. What Peter didn't hear and what Peter didn't respond to was, and on the third day be raised to life. On the third day be raised to life. The thing about God's plan is there's a portion of God's plan. There's a portion of God's will for your life, for my life, for this church. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just switch subjects. You can't take Matthew 16 and then somehow wrestle it into something about God's plan for your life. It's not about you. Good gravy. That is, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. But there's also that portion at the end, and on the third day be raised to life. On the third day be raised to life. And then Jesus highlights it again, but this time he makes it personal to the disciples in verse 27. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. There will be a reward. I know that we are told over and over and we are taught and rightly so from a young age if we've grown up in church that we don't serve God for the reward. But I'm here to tell you there's a reward and God talks about it quite a lot in scripture. There is a reward. I played football, loved football, but I also played for the reward. If you played a sport, you understand we can all say it's not, it doesn't matter who wins or loses. It matters how you play the game. Then why do we keep score? It does matter who wins and loses. It does matter. Now, in the grand scheme of life and the fact that the earth is still revolving around the sun, no, it doesn't matter. But it matters to the individuals involved. We play for the reward. We do things for the reward. Most of us, would not go into work each day if we didn't have a paycheck coming at some point in the future. You might love your job. You might be fulfilled in your job. You might love the people you work with. But if there wasn't a paycheck in the future somewhere, you probably wouldn't get up and go as often. God speaks of the reward. Jesus speaks of the reward. But it takes resolve to get to that reward takes dedication and takes commitment. It's not easy. It's not easy. The road's hard. There will be issues. There will be opposition. There will be conflict. But it never ends that way. With God, it ends with life. With God, it ends with hope. 
We call the end of life, we call that time when we're in heaven, we call that our blessed hope. Because God's story always ends with life. It ends with God's plans being fulfilled. And it ends for us in a life filled with significance and meaning. Ends with, uh, what? Ends with life filled with significance and meaning. There's not very many people who would honestly say and truthfully believe, no matter what comes out of their mouth, but at the core of who they are, not many people would say they want to live an empty life that's meaningless. No, with God's plan, it ends with a life of significance and meaning. Uh huh. It reminds me of this song. It's all about me. Really. It is all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. All this for only $19.95. Operators are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing. And I am why I live. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. I one 800 me 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 Or order online at me-myself-and-i.com. Call today because no one can praise you like you. Yeah, there you go. I, I mean, this whole theology, there's apparently some kind of hidden uh, purpose and meaning that you've got to get from God, and then somebody's going to come along and be a Judas or a Peter and try to stop you from doing it, but you've got to hang in there and do it so that you can have significance and purpose. And and all of this from Matthew 16, which is all about Christ. Weird. It ends with his plans fulfilled. It ends with life. Jesus knew what he must do. He knew what he was facing. He knew what lay ahead for him. And what an example he set so that you can follow it, so that you can do the same thing too. And he was resolved to follow through. He was committed. He was dedicated. And you need to have that dedication and commitment too if you want to have your purposes fulfilled the way Jesus had his. Okay. If you study any of the great sports teams in history, whichever dynasty you want to look at, whether you want to look at the 49ers of the 80s or you want to look at the Cowboys of the 90s. You want to look at any run of any great sports team in history or the greatest dynasty of all the New York Yankees. You know, whoever you want to look at. One thing you will find in common that all of those dynasty teams, all of those winning teams, there's one thing they all had in common no matter the sport. The one thing they all had in common was resolve. They were committed. They were dedicated. 
They, they had something within them that was different than those around them. Oh, yes, we can talk about talent, but we can also look at times when the team with the, li- with the less talent won. Just ask the Patriots what happened with the Giants in the Super Bowl. Cue sappy music. The better team on paper didn't win. But the team that won had a resolve. They had a commitment, a dedication. There was something different. They overcame obstacles. They overcame opposition to achieve greatness. You see that throughout history, whether it's a sports team or whether it's a civil rights movement or some other movement or some other thing in history. Those that achieved greatness did so by overcoming the obstacles, overcoming the opposition. Those who wanted, who achieved greatness, they, yeah, like Jesus, they overcame the obstacles. And you too can achieve greatness by overcoming the obstacles. Whew. All this from Matthew 16, which is about Jesus. <laughs> Weird. By being resolved and saying nothing is going to deter us from victory. Nothing is going to get in our way. Nothing is going to stop us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, stop you from doing what again? They were focused. They were determined. They were resolved. And they used that to create forward momentum, moment, forward motion, which became momentum. Mm, just like Jesus, you know, because Jesus used that for forward momentum so that you can follow his example of momentum so that you can achieve greatness, too. They used that to create that forward motion, and it became momentum, and momentum wins. It wins. Not Jesus, but momentum wins. Jesus doesn't win. He, he, momentum won for Jesus. Huh. We apply forward motion. We apply our resolve. We apply our focus by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, led by Him. And we follow his path and his plan and we're focused in his direction, letting nothing deter us, letting nothing take us to the left or to the right. But staying with our eyes and our mind focused and resolved on him. Then we know that God's work done God's way in God's time. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Okay, no, you you don't get to pray for me. <sighs> wow, that was weird. Um, yeah, see, here's the deal: when you make the Bible about you, you end up losing Jesus. You, the Bible doesn't even make any sense anymore, and you turn yourself into some kind of a weird Jedi where you got to somehow, you know, use the Force to figure out what your next step is going to be. Good night. But of course, if you just apply forward momentum, then the momentum will win, so that you can achieve greatness. Uh-huh, yeah, all right, yeah. All about me and not about Christ, and that's the problem. When you uh, mishandle God's word in this way, you end up losing Jesus. He he takes a back seat, and yeah, that's a weird place for the King of kings and Lord of lords and creator of heaven and earth to be, don't you think? Yeah, I do. All right. Uh, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website and click on one of our friendly um, well buttons there 
and uh, and support us. We truly can use your help, and uh, and thank you for those of you who are, are supporting us. Thank you for your support. So, what'd you think? Um, I, yeah, I'm creeped out by this whole thing. I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>